Good morning. We're in Ephesians chapter 1. I invite you to turn in your Bibles there this morning. If you don't have one, there should be a hard-backed black one nearby, and that is our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, now you do. God bless you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 15 through 23 this morning. <clears throat> we started the book of Ephesians several months ago and uh, took a few months to get through chapter 1, and uh, then we took a couple months break, and now we're back. And last week, uh, we did a general overview of the first part of chapter 1 from verse 1 to verse 14, and this morning we're going to do a general overview of verses 15 through 23, which will get us ready to launch into chapter 2, uh, beginning with next week. Um, let's read together this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23, small piece of liturgy we practice together after the reading of the text. I'll say that this is the word of the Lord and we invite you to say thanks be to God. Ephesians 1, 15, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also into the one, in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this passage, we see that Paul asks the Father for three things when he is making his prayers for the church in Ephesus. Three things that should inform not only how we pray ourselves, but how we pray for each other as well. Three things that are part of our possession in Christ, part of the treasury of every spiritual blessing that Paul talked about in chapter 1 that is ours in Christ Jesus. But notice first, before we get to those three things, that Paul starts out and he says, for this reason. Now, one of the things that we need to understand is that verses 3 through 14 in the Greek, in the original, one thought, one sentence in the original. Verses uh, now 15 through 23, again, one thought, one sentence in the Greek. And so Paul is going off on what God is doing. He's praying for them. And in this prayer, again, as verses 3 through 14, even though this was a doxology of Paul just praising God, it becomes for us very instructional because it was theological in nature. And so we notice, first of all, that Paul says, for this reason. Now in the English... 
It's easy to look at that and say, okay, for this reason, and what does he say? Because I've heard of your faith. But in the Greek, in the original, the, the thought is actually backward looking, not forward. And so the for this reason, here in verse 15, acts like a therefore in the text. Often when you read Paul in the New Testament, you'll find that he structures his letters to the church in a certain way. He will give them the gospel up front. And it's the because. And then there's this magic word that Paul used, not really magic, but we'll, we'll use that colloquialism and say there's this, this special word in Paul's letters when he's writing where he sets us up with the gospel and he shows us what who God is, and what He's done for us. And then He says, therefore, and He fills in the blank, live in this way. And so often you'll hear us talk about the because, therefore, of the gospel. That there are these um, indicatives of the gospel, truths of the gospel, but because of them, they inform how we ought to live, and we call those imperatives. And here's the problem. Often when we come to Paul, we skip the because, and we go right to the therefore. And what happens? We go to the works, and we divorce them from the gospel, and we have a generation of people who are trying to live out all the stuff that Paul says Christians should live out, divorced from the power that was meant to undergird them, which is the power of the gospel. And this, for this reason, acts like a therefore in the text because Paul is saying that what he's about to say is propped up on what he just said. So let's remember what he just said. We look back and we say, okay, for what reason then? For this reason, because Paul is saying, I'm going to pray these things for you because of the promise that I know is true, what I've just shared with you, verse 3, that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, that He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 7, in Christ we have redemption and forgiveness through His blood. Verse 11, we have received an inheritance which is what verse 13 through 14 tells us, the promised Holy Spirit by whom we have been sealed as a down payment until we receive the fulfillment of all these things. And so that we don't miss it, because Paul says it several times in verses 3 through 14, all of this is done by the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, and all of it repeatedly is for what? The praise of His glorious grace. So why does this matter? Again, it matters because it's a therefore. Because what Paul is about to pray for the Ephesian church is informed by the doctrine that he just shared with them. In other words, Paul is saying that God's sovereign election of a people for Himself, according entirely to the purpose of His own will and to the praise of His own glory, is the actual, grab this, 
motivation for his prayers for them. Now, some people would object. They would say, well, if God is sovereign, then what's the point of Paul praying? If he really believes that God's working all things together according to the counsel of his own will, then why, why even pray? Well, one, God commands us to pray. So there's that. And we don't allow the doctrine of the Bible to then cause us to rise above the text and say, well, if God's sovereign, then I'm just, I'm not going to pray. Because God works through means. He works through means. And He has appointed the prayers of His people to be part of what He works through in our lives and in the lives of of our brothers and sisters. Some people would eject. They say, well, if God's sovereign, what's the point of praying? They allow the doctrine of God's sovereignty to discourage them from praying. But not so with Paul. And usually they go further than that. Well, if God's sovereign, then why do I need to share the gospel with anybody? If God's sovereign, then why should I go and evangelize my neighbors? If God's so sovereign, then why do I need to do anything? Let's build a wall. Let's all go inside of it and just camp out and hang out there until Jesus comes back. Because that would reject the very command of our King. Who not only commanded us to pray in His name, but also commanded us to go. Therefore, into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. What if they're not elect? It's not up to you. That's not for you to know or to decide or to worry about. You are responsible for what God through His Son has commanded you to do. And what is that? To preach the gospel and keep preaching the gospel and to pray and keep on praying, and to seek Him in His Word, and keep on seeking. Well, I'm only going to know what God has sovereignly planned that I'm going to know about Him anyways. That's right, and He's appointed the means of His Word to reveal Himself to you. So dig into it, and get busy with it. Rather, for Paul, rather than dissuading Paul to engage... God's sovereignty actually persuades Paul to engage. It persuades Paul to pray all the more earnestly. Why? Because his prayers are based on the promises of God. They're based on things that God has already promised that he would do. And this makes me think that when it comes to prayer, I have a lot to learn. And this applies to more than just prayer. Paul's motivation in everything was that he was working under the direction of a sovereign king. Every church that he wrote to, every place that he visited, everywhere that he went, every person that he met, he operated in a confidence in those situations because he understood that whether he got there because he walked there or because of shipwreck, it was still a part of God's sovereign plan and God had promised to be with him everywhere that he went. Now, if we believed that, 
it would also fill us with confidence. Why? Because we would understand that it's not up to us to so fully understand every little thing before we share the gospel with somebody. We would understand that we don't have to be at a certain place in our life or be so holy or this place before we start praying for people, before we start sharing the gospel with people. We would understand that God is sovereign over every area of our life and it should fill us with confidence to know that there's not a place that we will step our foot that God has not already prepared for us to step. And if He has and he's promised that he'd be with us, then we can trust him with the outcome. Well, what if the people don't respond? Did you respond the very first time that you heard the gospel? Keep on preaching. Keep on praying. And trust the word of God to be true, that one plants the seed, another waters, but God gives the increase. Amen? So he says, for this reason, Paul knows that God is busy electing, redeeming, and sealing a people for himself and for his own pleasure. And so this becomes his primary reason for prayer. We see that in verses 19 through 23, he talks about the great power of God working through Christ even as he raised him from the dead and elevated him above all things to the place of all rule and authority and put all things under his feet. This is our king. It's Paul's king. And so he's busy doing his king's bidding. And then... Again, in the original, he does look forward. So there's this idea where he's looking backward and he's looking at all the things that he's just extolled in the majesty of the sovereignty of God in redemption. And he says, these things are why I'm praying for you. And also, what does he say? Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying... That the fruit, the byproduct of everything that is true in verses 3 through 14 has become evident in the lives of the church in Ephesus. All the things that are true in verses 3 through 14, Paul is hearing the report of the fruit of those things being lived out in the people in the church in Ephesus. Faith has come and love is the natural overflow and outworking of that faith in their lives. And so what's Paul saying? He's saying, praise God. Yes, these things are true, but we now look and we see the evidence of these things as they're being lived out in the people of God. You've received the gospel. You've been adopted. You are sons. You are daughters. You are the elect. And how do we know? Because we see the fruit of it in your lives. I cannot pass over this without asking the obvious introspective question of all of us this morning. Is the fruit of salvation, of God's election, evident in your life? Has there been a change in you? Can someone hear about it? Can they see it? Can they give God glory for it? Now we often say that the reason we know that we are saved is because 
we believe. James would say that the demons believe and tremble. Paul Washer would say that's because they're more pious than we are. (laughs) And it's true, unfortunately. But seriously, has there been a change? Now, the outward is secondary. Primarily, there has to be a change inwardly in your heart. And we know from God's word that part of what God is doing in redemption, in the regeneration of dead sinners, is God is by the Holy Spirit now changing and shaping desires inwardly. Brother, I'm still sinning. That's, we are all going to sin, but primarily has there been a change inwardly in your heart? Are your desires changing? Are you finding That things you once loved and wanted in sin are now changing. And even though you may still struggle with them, is there an inward change in your heart where you no longer are desiring to do those things? Remember Paul himself in Romans 7 talks about this struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And what does he say? He says, the good I know I ought to do, I don't do. And the the bad I wish I didn't do, I still do. Who can save me from this life of sin? What does he say? Praise God, the answer is in Jesus Christ. When we are saved, we are saved from the penalty of sin as we are justified before God. But the presence and power of sin still to some extent remains. And it is God's work of sanctification by His Spirit whereby He is daily, little by little, conforming us into the image of His Son where He is chiseling off those places, molding us into the image of His Son where those desires are beginning to change. And the root has to change before the fruit does. So often we want to point out each other's fruit and and we need to give it time for those inward desires to change so that the fruit can be outwardly affected. And it will come. Now if you have been in the Lord for years and years and years and years and that outward fruit is not being changed, that means there's an inward problem. And today, God can do the work that is needed to fix the roots that are broken and bring true and lasting fruit. What did Jesus say? And this is the will of my Father, that you would believe in the one who sent, whom he sent and that you would bear fruit and that that fruit would remain true and lasting fruit because it's coming from the true vine, which is Christ. Here we see that for the Ephesians, their faith is not dead. Their faith has been made known to men by their works and the news of their growing love for God and for each other is spreading. Paul hears about it and he says what? Let me pray for you. And what does Paul pray? Three things. Paul prays that they may be granted knowledge in these three areas. That they would, one, that they would know God better. Two, that they would know the hope 
to which He has called them. And three, that they would know the power that He has committed to getting them there to that hope. Paul's prayer for the saints in Ephesus is not that they would be removed from trouble or suffering. Did you notice that? (laughs) Paul doesn't begin and say, for this reason, because of what I've heard, I, I pray for you and I pray I pray that you would be protected. I pray that you'd just be kept from all danger. That you wouldn't have any troubles. And that everything would just go well for you. Is that what Paul prays? No. He doesn't even mention it. He doesn't even mention it. He doesn't pray that they would be removed from trouble and suffering. But that in the middle of those very trials, that they would know God more that they would know the hope to which they have been called, and that they would know the power that God has committed them to getting there. All of this is rooted in and displayed for us as he goes on in 19 through 23 in the resurrection of Jesus and showing us that it is he who is the one who sustains the body, his church, which he fills all in all. Now these three areas inform how we ought to pray in the midst of every circumstance of our lives, for ourselves and most especially for each other. So often as we pray for each other, we pray because there's a problem. We pray because someone comes, hey, this thing's going on in my life and it just really sucks and I need you to pray for me. And what do we do? We pray that the sucky situation would end, right? Forgive my vernacular there. We pray that we would be removed from the pain. We pray that the pain would go away. We pray that all these things would just go away. God, just take it away, take it away, take it away now. Sorry. And then, I don't know where that came from. Uh, But as we pray for each other, what is Paul praying? He's not praying that God would just take it away, take it away. Now he's praying that they would know God more in the midst of it. That they would know hope in the midst of it. Know hope in the midst of trial? Yes, that's where you need hope. And that he would, they would know the power that God has committed them to getting there. So before we jump in fully, let's talk briefly about prayer so that we know that we're all on the same page here and talking about the same thing. You see, prayer is not some Christian incantation. There are no magic words. It's not religious ceremony, okay? You don't get what you want from God because you prayed in Jesus' name, amen. Or ouch, you can say ouch if you want. You don't get what you want because you prayed with two or three other believers. That's not how this works. It's not you getting whatever you want. Essentially, prayer is simply how we talk to God. God speaks to us through His Word, and we respond to Him through prayer. The historic catechisms agree when asking what is prayer, they essentially answer that prayer is the pouring out or the offering up of our hearts to God in praise, in petition, in confession of sin, and in thanksgiving for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ. 
1689 Confession in chapter 22, paragraph 3 says that prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men. But that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others, I love this part, in a known tongue. I like how John Bunyan frames prayer in his treatise on prayer. He says, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the soul to God through Christ in the strength and the assistance of the Spirit for such things as God has already promised. So when Paul is praying these things, he's not just offering up wishful thinking. He's not sitting there going, oh God, I really just hope that you somehow make yourself known to them more. I I really just hope that you somehow, you know, just give them some kind of hope in this situation. I really hope that somehow they can just know a little bit of your power. No, Paul's not offering up wishful thinking. He is praying these things because of the promise of God to already do it. God wants to know His kids. God wants His kids to know the hope that He has provided for them. God wants His kids to know that He has committed all the power that is necessary to seeing them through, to seeing that hope as a completion. Remember that faith and hope are intrinsically combined. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. In other translations, it says, now faith is the confident assurance of things hoped for. What does that mean? It means that Christian hope is different than worldly hope. Worldly hope is wishful thinking. But Christian hope is a confident assurance that the one who promised is faithful. Did you grab that? Christian hope is the confident assurance that the one who promised is faithful. So what does Paul ask the Father for? How should this inform our prayers? He prays that God that we would know God better. The Ephesians church, we need this as well. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. So first, Paul prays that they would know God better. He doesn't pray that their circumstances would change. Rather, he prays that their perception of God will change in the middle of their circumstances. And not just a perception change, but that the Ephesians would truly know God more and better, more accurately, that they would know Him more intimately. Now, lest we forget, do you know where Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians from? Prison. He's writing them this letter from prison. So suffering 
and perhaps wanting your circumstances to change is something that Paul is very well acquainted with. He's not praying that the Ephesians would be removed from every kind of danger or evil in the world. He's praying that they would be able to withstand the evil. He's not even praying that they would be able to withstand the evils of pagan culture or that they would be safe from the evil Roman Empire or that the guards wouldn't find their secret meeting places or that the people would all be healthy, wealthy, and wise. No, he prays that they would know God better. Why? Why? Why is this Paul's first prayer for them? Because this is what we need more than anything, is to know our God more intimately. We need to know our Heavenly Father better. This is not Paul asking that they would know God in a general sense. Every person on earth knows God generally through nature and are held accountable for that knowledge even though they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. But Paul is praying that they would have an intimate knowledge of God. Listen to how he makes his petition. That the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. This is not the kind of knowledge that everyone has. It's different, it's deeper, it's intimate, and it's brought through the revelation by the Spirit. So again, we go to the catechism and ask, how do we learn about God? Well, He reveals Himself. And where does God reveal Himself? He reveals Himself through nature, and more specifically and specially through His Word, which is the Bible. Maybe today you don't yet even know God as your heavenly Father. Today you can know Him through Jesus Christ. And I call you today to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. The Son will introduce you to the Father and you can begin a lifelong journey of joy where you can begin to know God better every single day. That knowledge is not going to come like it did in the matrix, plugged in and zapped and then you just know it all. Rather, it's going to come as you continue to go to the revelation that He's already given you, which is through His Word. As Christians, we should not just want to know about God. We should want to know Him. We should desire to know Him personally. It's not enough to know facts about Him. We need to know Him. And prayer primarily is not about God trying to, us trying to get God to accomplish our plans. Rather, it's about knowing Him and gladly submitting ourselves to His plans. Is this not how Jesus prayed? Is this not how He taught His disciples to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is it not how he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done? This too should inform our prayers. But here's the problem. It flies in the face of what the modern church prays for today. We've been taught that suffering is from the devil. And that if anything bad happens, it's because Satan is out to get you. Or that there's sin in your life. 
But it is also contrary to our innate desires to avoid that very suffering. Do you know why we so want to believe that all suffering is from the devil? Because we don't want to have to go through it. We forget that God works through our sufferings. That we are sometimes in our prayers asking to be removed from the very implement of God's sanctifying work in our lives. Think about it. Where has the most growth in your life with God come from? Has the most growth in your knowledge of who He is and the hope that you have in Him and the power that He's committed to getting you there, has that come when things are just going really great? Or has the growth come when the times are hard? Has the growth come when your faith has been stretched? Has the growth come in times of suffering? I would wager to bet that the growth has most often come in the times that have been the hardest. Because it was in those times that you saw God's glory and His sufficiency and His sovereignty most accurately. Sometimes we are praying and asking to be removed from the very implement of God's sanctifying work in our lives. In our marriages as Christians, God puts two sinners saved by grace together. Do you know why? To sanctify us. Do you know how that happens? When we start butting heads with each other. As conflict arises in our marriage, God is using that conflict as an implement for His sanctifying work in our lives. And more often than praying that in the middle of that we would know God better and know His hope and know His power, we pray that we'd be removed from the very situation that God is wanting to use to sanctify you and grow you and show Himself to you. In the church... God brings sinners saved by grace together. Do you know why? So that He can sanctify us. Do you know how that happens? As we start to butt heads together, do you know why that's happening? Because God wants to sanctify you. And it's through that interaction as we deal with our sin with each other because it's in that relationship that our sin is uncovered. We are so good at covering up with fig leaves and we don't want them to be uncovered. But the problem is, is that when we get together, we butt heads and our sin is revealed. And this is what we need to begin to understand, that that is a grace from God. It is a grace from God. That conflict in that relationship is a grace from God. And He is using it as an implement for your sanctification. So don't run from it. Don't pray to be removed from it. Engage in it and ask the Lord that He might, both in you and in the other person, show Himself more intimately to you. 
Reveal the hope that you have in Him rather than in this all working out just perfectly. And let Him reveal the power that He has designed to get you there. Even at the end of his letter in the, to the Ephesians, Paul will ask the Ephesians to pray for him. What do you think Paul asks them to pray for? Let me tell you what he doesn't ask them to pray for. He doesn't ask that he would be removed from prison. <laughs> Isn't that odd? I think that is just the most crazy thing I've ever heard in my life. Hey guys, I really need you to pray for me. I, I mean, the, the first thing on my mind would be, get me out of here. But it's not what Paul prays for. He prays that words would be given to him to open his mouth and boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel all the more. You see, we tend to treat God in prayer like an ATM and we keep trying to draw cash from an account that has no money when we are just asking God to do whatever it is that we want Him to do. But what good father gives his children whatever they want? The answer is none. Because that person would not be a good father. A father who gives their children whatever they want is not a good father. And we know that in the natural sense. But sometimes when we go to our heavenly father, we think if he was good, he would just give us whatever we want. But here's the deal. Our earthly fathers aren't even very good, but they know that much. And God truly is good. And he is a good father. And he will not just give us necessarily whatever we want until He just turns us over to our own desires completely. We get mad because we don't get what we want. We act like infants who don't know their dad well enough to trust that he sees things from a different perspective than we do. But as we get to know our Heavenly Father better, which is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians and what we need to pray for ourselves and for each other, when we begin to understand His plans and that He has a plan and He's working His plan, then we begin to make God's plans our prayers. And this is what we find. Our prayers get answered. As we start to make God's plans our prayers, we will find our prayers getting answered. Why? Because God is committed to His plan. He's committed to seeing it through because all of this is what? According to the counsel of His will for the praise of His glorious grace. Prayer is not about getting God to submit to my will, but about submitting ourselves to His. As God answers this prayer of us, Knowing Him better, we will know His will and we will love it because we love Him. When we know Him, something happens. When we know the sovereign God of the universe and that He works all things according to the purpose of His will, something should happen inside of us. Do you know what that is? Hope should rise. Hope should rise. So Paul prays that they would know hope. Not that they would be hopeful but they would have intimate knowledge of the hope which God has called them to. Why? Because He knows that we live 
in the already not yet of the gospel. He knows that they are going to go through times that seem dark, that seem hard, that seem like there is no hope. And it's in those moments that they need to know the hope of God most of all. And what does that hope become? Hebrews chapter 6, 19 and 20. It becomes an anchor for their soul. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The very one who has redeemed us is making intercession for us and on our behalf, not pleading on the basis of our good works, but rather standing before the Father and showing His own nail-pierced hands and spear-pierced side and saying, this is my beloved and my banner over Him, over her, is love. I have paid their debts and they are paid in full. If we are to have hope, we must remember the gospel. Amen? We must remember the gospel. And we must know that God has committed Himself to seeing that hope through. What, what does He connect that power to in verses 19 through 23? What is it? It's the resurrection. He connects the power that God has committed to seeing us through to the resurrection. And if we go to Romans chapter 8, we find out what God was doing in the resurrection. What was it? He was sending His Spirit to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. And what does Paul say? The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, what? Now lives and dwells in you and is giving life to your mortal body. I'm speeding on ahead here. But we need to understand that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is in fact the person of the Holy Spirit. It's not just some metaphysical force. We're not talking about some electrical current that God's just going to zap you with. We're talking about the third person of the Trinity. How powerful and how valuable is this force of guarantee that the very thing that God is promising to see us through is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Paul connects this power not to enlightenment, not to some kind of empowerment from knowing the teachings of Christ, but rather to a power that we share with Him because of the resurrection. And Paul roots our connection to this power into the cold, hard, historical fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. What does it mean? It means that our little efforts at changing ourselves in our lives are not enough. Because it means that we need a personal connection to the Godhead through the Holy Spirit and by faith in the resurrection of Jesus. We are people of the resurrection. 
It's what Paul said he wanted to know above all else in Philippians chapter 3. He says that I want to know you in your sufferings so that I may know you and the power of your resurrection. When we live in expectation of resurrection because of the resurrection of Christ, we are empowered to live unto Christ. And to suffer for His sake, knowing that even if we die, as Paul says in Philippians 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So let me ask you a question in closing this morning. What can you do to a person like that? What can you do to a person who even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of trying circumstances, even in the midst of uncertainty, what can you do to a person who in the middle of that circumstance, God is showing himself more intimately to them, they're receiving more intimate knowledge of the hope that they have in Christ, and they are communing more intimately with the Holy Spirit in this power that God is committed to seeing them through. What can you do to a person like that? The answer is nothing. We're going to make him suffer. Praise God. I get to share in the sufferings of my Savior, Paul would say. Well, that didn't work. We'll throw him in prison. Oh, thank God. I have needed some quiet time so that I can write letters to the churches. We'll kill him. Even better, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Oh, that we would begin to taste even a fraction of that church. Just a fraction. That knowledge of God, that kind of hope, that kind of confident assurance in the power of God to see us through, that He who began a good work in you would be faithful to see it through to completion, that kind of confidence would change us. It would change us individually. It would change us as a church. Because we wouldn't run from conflict, we'd enter into it. We wouldn't passively, aggressively run away from each other, but we would speak the truth in love to each other and trust a God who's able to work through those things to make in us the people that He intended us to be from the very beginning. And we would find Him to be enough. May we be a people of resurrection, not only of Christ, but of our own. May we live in patterns and rhythms of confession and repentance and reconciliation. May we daily die to ourselves and pick up our cross, not only to follow Christ, but to serve and love one another. May we find that our hope is not for this life only, but also for the one to come. And may we find that we, if we are suffering today, that we have hope in Christ Jesus. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and this is in closing. So we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient, they are temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen? Would you stand with me this morning? I want to invite you to close your eyes this morning and ask this question as you go to God in prayer in your own words. As you seek Him in your own heart as we prepare to go to the table this morning. How can this inform our prayers? When the days get long or we encounter the dark night of the soul, when we encounter various trials and circumstances, when we suffer and are, and are in pain, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, can we begin to pray that God would use these circumstances for His glory? Can we begin to pray that we would, through these trials, begin to know God better and know Him more intimately as Father, as Sustainer? Can we pray that rather than being removed from painful situations, that God would help us to be more intimately acquainted with the hope that He has called us to in Christ Jesus? And that He would give us a confident assurance of the power that He has committed through His Holy Spirit to getting us there. That we would recognize the work of the Son and the Spirit in us now, carrying us toward the Father one day and one trial at a time. That not one of us would enter heaven's gates an estranged child who does not know his father, but rather running to a father whom we have come to know through the Son and the unity of the Holy Spirit. Father, may it be. And to it, may we all offer our amen.